0: There's an article from Christianity Today that I was reading uh, in the past, and it's entitled "Come Thou Long Expected Judgment." This article actually is arguing that the coming of Christ that we today and tomorrow commemorate for Christmas, uh, commemorating the incarnation, the fact that God became flesh, it's true. But this article argues that also the commemoration of the coming of Christ is also a commemoration of the gift of God's final justice. That behind Christmas, it's it's this uh, multiple uh, dimension. Yes, there is the incarnation, God become man for our salvation, but there's also justice. Just to give you an idea, the hymn that we just sang from Isaac Watts, uh, Joy to the World, uh, the story behind that hymn, uh, it was not written as a Christmas hymn. That hymn was written actually as uh, describing the second coming of Christ. As the moment in which Christ will come to make all things right. Let me quote the article from Christianity Today. It is precisely Christ's second advent that has always been the primary focus of the season of Christmas for the church calendar. He will return to judge the living and the dead. When the early Christians began to pray, fast, and give alms before Christmas, they were mostly preparing themselves to receive in glory, the one who had first before become their savior in the manger. The hope for the coming judgment of Christ was embedded in the shape of the season. Advent hope, the article continues, is preeminently about hope for the return of Jesus. And so the article says, The greater culprit is the sheer forgetfulness that plagues Western Christians. And he says, It is a loss of confidence that the final judgment of Christ is actually good news. Something for believers unjustly persecuted to look forward to. And the article completes, Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. All Christ's enemies, sin, death, the devil, will be judged and put into subjection to Christ's kingship. Christians, when they depart from secular Christmas they can do so to the extent that we recover these themes from the early church. It becomes the season of hope for us insofar as we rediscover our confidence that He, the return of Christ and His judgment over sin, death and the evil is actually good news. It's part of the gospel. To this less familiar aspect of Christ's birth, I want to bring our attention this morning as we go through the book of uh, Isaiah, this prophecy that we read from Isaiah chapter 9. The time is not specified, yet we know it was written 600 years before the coming of Christ. And it declares for us these now familiar words that we sing in Christmas carols: unto us a child is born. Yet there is a context to that prophecy and we want to look at that context. We already touched Isaiah in weeks past, if you were with us in the evening service, uh, whether it was going through the major prophets or when we celebrated the life of Joyce at her funeral with chapter 57 of Isaiah. There's a major threat in Isaiah that is the permanence of the kingdom of Israel through the exile, this theme that we have covered in previous week, the invasion of Assyria. Uh, Particularly here we have the northern tribes, Galilee, which is mentioned here in our text that land was indeed in darkness after the exile took place it was invaded deported and the prophecies of a child comes therefore at the time when the kingdom of israel has faced a spiritual crisis the faithless king Ahaz was supposed to sit on david's throne he is condemned by isaiah the prophet but isaiah again doesn't just give us judgment he gives us so many messianic prophets prophecies it's the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And Isaiah is important because there is a glorious future after judgment. And in this first part of Isaiah chapter 9, which expounds sin and how the Messiah, the child, will come to solve once and for all the problem of sin, because only the Messiah can save the nation from his death. The salvation comes by the power of God through the Redeemer. In that sense, Isaiah is an evangelical prophet. It shows us the good news. There are more hints about Christ in in Isaiah than in any other Old Testament book. And this is not just an isolated prophecy. I would ask you to now open also to chapter 7, just two chapters earlier of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 11 to 14. This prophecy comes in this context. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it, either in the depth or in the heights above. But Hea says, I will not ask, I will not test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing that for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is the prophecy, the detailed prophecy about the sign, the virgin birth, Emmanuel, God with us. So chapter 7, now all the way to 12, and we're in between that, there's this sequence of sermons about Emmanuel, God with us. The shoot from the stump of Jesse, chapter 11, verse 1. The restoration of the the kingdom of David after exile through the child. So there's more than a great king, friends, here. The truly divine, mighty God, and the truly human child in our text of chapter 9, is the king of the universe. So that C.S. Lewis says, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. That is the ultimate breach that brought C.S. Lewis to faith. They say that God became a man. God became a man. So this is the second sermon of Isaiah. And he describes for us this new ruler. The focus here is uh, the speedy protection that will come toward oppressed people of God. a coming deliverer. The theme of God's gift of a deliverer, of a warrior, is crucial when speaking of this child. The child will rule over people with wisdom, power, peace. He will fulfill the promise of a coming righteous son of David. Through him an era of unprecedented peace and harmony on earth will come. So we must also keep in mind not just the context of the passage now, 600 years before Christ. Let's now look at the context of the fulfillment of this passage. I think it's very important. Think about Christmas. First of all, it's not a cute child. It's a king who has come to make things right. But also, what was happening in Israel? 700 years have passed. There was no more prophecy. People were starving for hearing from God. Oppression under foreign invaders. There is no king for Israel after exile. Heavy taxations, injustice, violence, plundering, poverty, social upheavals. Israel is crying these words, Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel. We are in captivity. Israel was in deepest darkness, hopelessness. There was a lifeless spiritual desert that the people of God were walking through. What they were waiting for. They were wondering, has God abandoned His promises? Has God abandoned His people? Has God forgotten to be gracious? See, Israel needed a deliverer, a king. Even uh, in the Old Testament, there's this pagan Balaam who prophesies this even before Israel ever entered the promised land. In Numbers 24, 17, he gives this prophecy. I shall see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. There shall come a star out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of all the suppressing nations that are oppressing Israel at this time. See, Israel was waiting for the child to come and make things right, to establish his kingdom. There's this uh, TV series that now is popular among Christians, The Chosen. Not everything about that series is to be uh, commanded, but there are some things, especially in the... In the Christmas one where I just love the scene where people are coming to to Christ and they're saying we have waited you for so long we have waited you for so long imagine Jews in the first centuries are reading the prophecies from Isaiah chapter 9 they're waiting for the fulfillment with expectation after 400 years of judgment exile silence no more prophets no more word of the Lord's famine for the Word of God and the last legitimate Jewish king of Israel was on the throne of David, it's, it's past, 400 years. Now you have Herod, who's not a Jew, a puppet king, the Romans, who are cruel, unjust, they've taken over Israel. These were indeed dark days. Hunger, injustice, the yoke of slavery. Israelites desperately now awaited a deliverer, Messiah. To do what? not to just exchange christmas gift but to bring justice to bring his kingdom to bring judgment over the cruel enemies within that israel apostasy so their mistake obviously was to think that those old testament prophecies were one and a whole israel was unable to discern that yes there's a double fulfillment and that's why christmas is the beginning of the fulfillment but the second coming of christ Uh, fulfills completely those prophecies. So Isaiah 9 was partially fulfilled at Christmas, but we now await eschatologically the fulfillment through this universal rule of Christ when he comes back. But the first and the second coming, friends, are tied together. Christmas and the coming of Christ are to be seen together. Christmas does look forward to the second coming of Christ. I want you to realize what this text is saying in Isaiah 9. That Christmas is more than a commercial celebration. Christmas is more than sitting down and, and exchanging gifts and, and filling your, your stomach with good food. Christmas was for the early church under the, 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 the persecution, the constant reminder of for us, for the true genuine servants of God, of the coming. There is a king coming who will make all things right. He will make all things right. Let's look at the quality of these child, therefore. The first quality we see in verse 1 and 2 is that this child was a radiant child. There's something about light here that I want you to see, which is the theme that we passed out on our flyers of the the light in the darkness. This child brings hope where there was no more hope, when there was complete hopeless. In the Hebrew, verse 1 is actually part of chapter 8 still. But it describes that if you look at chapter 8, there's a horrible state of wretchedness and despair. And God is about to bring change to that despair, that the, the, there's this woman who has been unjustly accused, and she passes from gloom and distress. Israel was a woman in distress, under constant burden of oppression, attacks, and this woman moves from a heavy oppression to deliverance, from bring, being lightly esteemed to become, become the first in Israel history. And there you have, uh, in verse 1, all this detailed geographical uh, reference, Zebulun, this are this all pointing to Jesus' own origins. Zebulun was one of the smallest tribe of Israel. And it becomes through this prophecy gloriously crucial in the overall redemptive history of God. It's the last of the sons of Jacob that he has through Leah, Zebulun, one of the fathers of the 12 tribes. It had been allowed a smaller territory, very, very tiny tribe, north of Manasseh. Sadly, they did not drive out the Canaanites when they came into the Promised Land. They were pretty insignificant, we could say. It was an insignificant area of lower Galilee. And yet the promised child, once he grows up, will minister there. And Naphtali, Naphtali is the second geographical location. This is another son of Jacob, not even through Leah, but through her servant. And the broader territory of northern Israel is in view. The, the last part of the promised land available at the end of the conquest. And uh, Naphtali was conquered by Assyria by the time of Isaiah, 734. It never rise to prominence it is really insignificant once again and it laid in darkness of exile so except that both of them however both of these areas Nephtali and Zebulun will be Galilee and the way of the sea all the way to the Mediterranean Sea that is the principal scene where the Lord Jesus decides to have his public ministry our text calls it the Galilee of the Gentiles of the nations The reason is because after the exile, foreigners had had invaded that land. But later, such region also will be the bridge for Jesus' ministry to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. And verse 2 describes for us this geography. There's a great positive change about to happen even in lowly Nazareth. People who walked in darkness shall have seen a great light. This darkness, as I said, is the darkness of evil, the darkness of unbelief. But mostly here refers to the ignorance that Israel was under, the lack of answers from God. Think of it, 400 years of prophetic silence precedes the fulfillment of this prophecy. The people were left in terror, distress, and yet the same people will see something that is very agreeable to to them, because they are in the dark and they see a great light. That indeed is the star of Bethlehem shine forth with all of the ray over the manger hundreds and hundreds of years later elsewhere Isaiah describes this light in those terms in Isaiah chapter 30 verse 26 the light of the moon will be as the light of the Sun and the light of the Sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people see just like as the Sun and the moon were great lights created by God in Genesis the same way There's going to be a creative act of God. Let there be light. That God will be made into flesh. And in connection with previous darkness, there now comes a guidance. There, There now comes a divine intervention. Have you ever stopped and think why we use Christmas lights, for example? Some say the inventor of tree lights actually was Martin Luther himself. That out of a lampstand in the temple, in the almond tree placed in the temple in the Old Testament came a fulfillment in the New Testament that Jesus com- comes himself calling himself the light of the world. We saw in our study of the Gospel of John throughout the past months, remember? And in Christmas, therefore, when you think about lights, they should recall you the spiritual darkness and the light of Christ coming, shining as our true light. The light of discernment as opposed to ignorance. The light of Righteousness as opposed to evil. The evil stays in secret, stays in the dark. And the Messiah, most of all, the Messiah is that great light that shines in the deep darkness. Later in chapter 42 and chapter 49, the light to the nations. That's how the the Messiah will be. He will bring life. Light as life as opposed to death. Because us who dwelt in the land or the shadow of death, that's where we are and we need light we are not just in darkness friends but in intense darkness a deep shadow darkness is a dangerous place to be because he who walks in darkness will stumble darkness here also refers to the underworld that's why the old testament the greek old testament uses actually and quotes quoted by matthew in chapter 4 16 speaks of shadow of death that's why your, your translation might say shadow of death the place had gotten in israel as dark as death we could say our darkness is our spiritual death you see and now this light of Jesus comes to enlighten your darkness to save you from your darkness and upon you this light can shine. Galilee those who witness the light of Christ throughout His ministry and also the light at, at the beginning of the earthly life of Jesus through the star that shone upon the place where Jesus was born in the darkness and now that light reaches us all of us as gentiles as non-jewish people and it dawns this light it blazes forth Matthew 4 continues to quote these verses actually right at the beginning of Jesus public ministry right after Jesus starts saying repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand the moment that Jesus leaves his hometown and he begins this ministry in Capernaum is where the light begins to shine to his fullness You see how the prophecy is fulfilled 2,000 years ago at Christ's birth. J.I. Packer says this, Christmas message is this. Is that there is a hope for a ruined humanity. Hope for pardon, hope for peace with God, hope for glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor. He was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. See how with the birth of Jesus... The light of the world came to give hope. And I want to say it comes to insignificant people. Uh, These tribes that we refer to. Insignificant, but also living in darkness. The, 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 The darkness is the complete lack of the presence of God, friends. A place that looks abandoned. A place that looks barren. Void of any life. Darkness is also the judgment of exile, as we said. This, the regions of the northern Israel suffered. The effect of judgment for sin are indeed deep darkness upon all the workers of iniquity. There is a hopeless oblivion under the bondage of sin. That is the darkness of the natural man. Is that how you feel this Christmas Eve? Or perhaps you've gone through similar terrible wildernesses in Pine Pass or darkness? Driven as a captive and sinking in the land of despair, feeling alone, lifeless, hopeless, grieving under the yoke of sin. As if the life has been taken away from you by some oppression. Hope seems gone, you still wait in the dark, at times the Lord's face seems to be hiding. Everything is dark. Friends, I'm telling you, it is for you that this light can shine to save you this morning that in, w- in waiting for the Lord in the, in, the, in the season of dark, and we are exhorted even in the shadow of death by the word of God to persevere with expectancy. Even in the, in the here and now of a fallen world, that in the gloomy, deep midwinter that we are walking right now, God wants us to, to, to turn our coldness into warmth, our darkness into light. All because a child came as a man to feel our woes. Christ, he came as a God to help us out out of all of our troubles. This light in our text is a person, friends. Jesus is the light of the world. The true light which comes into the world. And, And he exhorts you now to rise in faith and hope in the coming worldwide king too. That is part of this same hope of Christmas. He comes again. He will come again to make all things right, friends. To repay all evil on the evil doers to deliver everyone who is currently oppressed, to make you see that not everything is lost. The hope of Christmas remains there to remind us that that is not the case. Injustice doesn't have the final word. The main mission of Christ is to give light to those who sit in darkness, to guide our feet toward the way of peace. The light of your deliverance this morning, friend, is here in this room. And God says, arise, let the light of Christ shine over you friends he's effectively able to remove all the darkness that is within all of that can be gone he can because why he takes our darkness he comes into this dark world from the manger to the cross he faced darkness he overcame darkness by rising again and he forgives your darkness by not counting it against you anymore he can show you grace by repaying your sin with salvation but you got to get out of darkness you gotta get out of darkness. You cannot stay in darkness, work in the dark against your fellow men, and at the same time come to the light. I'm telling you, these two things are impossible. When the light shines, John 1, we've been through it months ago. What did what was the reaction? People who didn't want to come to the light because they didn't want their deeds to be exposed. Friends, don't do that. Repentance means that you realize the light is shining your sin. And now you turn to the light, you confess your sin, and you make it right. Because if you conceal your deeds in the dark, you don't belong to the light yet. That is the call. That is the warning. Darkness, I want, there's another aspect of darkness here. It speaks of obscurity, insignificance. The little town of Bethlehem, Nazareth, Galilee. This is a despised region. In the back corner of Israel. a silent night. God doesn't come in the palaces or in the temple. God came in a cave, outside, amidst sheep and oxen. Can you, can, you, can you imagine that the king of Israel is kicked out in the street, not even room in the inn for the greatest of kings to now be born in the most humble of places? What does that tell you? That some of our lives might have felt or feels at times this way. Some of us may feel excluded, marginalized, insignificant, too normal and average in a world that seeks to always to be special, which creates discontent within, craving for something more. Friend, the hope of this first Noel comes to the lowly, to the lightly esteemed things of this world. Why? To nullify the things that think they they have something where they're nothing. The place where people say nothing good can come out of it is where Christ brings his ministry jesus comes to bring honor to those who while dishonored in this world bring honor to god see the the king came not to dwell in palaces the king came to dwell in a lowly manger not through earthly power but through defending the poor the powerless and later he he was put on a shameful cross and yet there at the cross how unlikely it was that was the triumph of god there at the cross, He took your sin. There the oppression the oppression caused by your sin, all the horror and the tragedy caused by sin. There your sin were once and for all subjugated. There you find your freedom. There the shadow of death was filled with light through the resurrection. And my call to you this morning is turn to Him in faith this Christmas. Let this Christmas be for you like that old Simeon who is in the temple. He's waiting for so long in the temple. He's old, He's The Holy Spirit tells him that finally that you will see the salvation of the Lord before you die. And there in Luke chapter 2, verse 29 to 31, Lord, now you have letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Do you see your salvation, friend? My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. But friends, none of this can benefit you if Christ would not become a man, a child. Because you see, this child is not only radiant, but let's go to our second point. He is also a reigning child. There is more than a child born in a manger here. Verse 3 to 5. This child who brings joy through his deliverance. Verse 3, as often is the case in the prophets, seems to break the flow of thoughts. Now the text goes from the third to the second person. You, which is God... Through this child multiplies the nation of Israel, brings joys as is for a good harvest, a great blessing. God rest you, Mary, gentlemen, we could say, or joyful, joyful. We adore thee. That's why we say those things at Christmas. There is a reason, reason we'd say that. And the reason is because this child is a king. The blessing in view here in this second part of the prophecy is a military victory against all the enemies of God. That God through this coming child will break the yoke of oppression upon God's true people from other nations. The yoke of slavery. Uh, It speaks here, our text of uh, the day of Midian, verse 3. The day of Midian. Gideon, Judges chapter 7. What is significance about that parallel and the comparison? Is the unlikely instrument of victory. If you remember Gideon with pitchers and trumpets or a defenseless baby in a manger here comes triumphal king and through both God conquers principalities notice the picture our text it is not a cute child in a manger but he's already grown up and he's a king and he's come to avenge on the blood of the enemies of God he's clothed rolled in blood burning in fire That's definitely not the traditional nativity scene you hear about on TV, isn't it? Yet even these verses are parts of these prophecies. Okay? Someone said about Christ, his poverty was so great he was born in another man's house. And he was buried in another man's tomb. And yet there's, there's a flip coin. That through such lowly means, there's still a dimension of universal triumph, lordship, dominion, rulership in this child. Doug Wilson wrote in this little book on Christmas. So in Christmas, we turn to the principalities and powers that are left. We conduct our celebrations, and all God's people say, take that. That with the birth of Jesus, there is a, obviously an unlikely poor mean that, however, is able to accomplish the mighty deliverance and brings joy to the world. That is what the hope of Christmas is. That, it seems an apparent contradiction, isn't it? That we can harmonize only tomorrow morning. You wake up on Christmas day. That this child is a disarming child. The story of Christmas indeed reminds us that like for Gideon, the, the birth of Christ, as harmless as it looks like, is able to begin something that ultimately culminates as the second coming, when God will vanquish all of his enemies. Sin, doubts, fears. He can break your yoke and the rod of oppression from your sins. If only you believe in Jesus. God can turn your losses into abundance. But true power comes through weakness. That is the point of Christmas. Just as uh, Mary says in the Magnificat, God shows strength with his arms. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He brings down the mighty from their thrones and he exalts them. The humble he feels the hungry and sends the rich empty-handed justice to be poor is to be rich the last will be first God exalts the humble and humbles the proud that even feeble means are not insufficient friends when God and his hands is there to deliver us from oppression these kinds of things is what causes should cause us to have true lasting joy as a, a true believer If you have terror, it's because maybe you have not embraced. If Christ comes to you this Christmas, then your joy can be great. If you ever experience this joy, you know there is no joy like what Christ can give you. And it turns your despair into joy. Why? Because you believe in the superiority of the King, of a sovereign King, over all trials, all injustice. You see, God acts through such unlikely means. The cross becomes the instrument of triumph. That cross was the final battle. Our sin, the main weapon against us, was destroyed by Christ's death. In the name of Jesus, death itself shall be destroyed. This is the opposite of how most people go through their Christmas holidays, isn't it? They miss Christ in Christmas. They miss the king's size of the manger. For them is all about big expenses, consuming more stuff, getting fatter on the table. Yet the birth Jesus for the birth of Jesus forces us to stop and realize uh, even though what appears to the other world as nothing, God chose to bring his kingdom to triumph. The Christmas is about the king is coming. The king is coming. Be ready to meet him. Lastly, there's a one last quality of this child, I think the greatest. Verse 6 to 7 concludes our text, he is a righteous child. He will bring God's perfect rule on earth. Verse six gives us a reason for. What is the reason of the victory? Why is this a good news? See, people get created in announcing the birth of a new baby. Sometimes it's uh, statements like this. Our family, our family has grown. There's a new kid on the block. Hi everyone, my name is blank and they get created in the way they, in which they announce it through cards, light shows, Facebook posts, and their reaction is always exhilarating to watch. Think about how much that reaction grows, depending on who the child is, who the baby is. Then you get media involved, newspapers, it's a huge news. And now what the scripture is telling you, that this child is God on earth. The cause of Israel's ultimately victory, we saw in past verses, is that unto us, a child is born. For our advantage and benefit, a child is born. We are connecting now, verse 14. It's a public declaration, okay? Christmas is like a person going with a bell and and, and telling the whole city. He pronounced like a herald the good news for everyone to know a son is given. Given. A gift for all of us. All we have to do is passively given, we just have passively to receive this gift. But again, notice how immediately after this new, the implication is for what? It is not for celebration, exchanging of gifts, acute manger. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Dominion, princely powers. This child will one day take dominion over the world and return to heaven to sit again at the right hand of the power of God, awaiting to place all of his enemies under his feet. And now let's go to a series of royal titles that follow of this righteous child. Wonderful counselor. He is qualified to reign because he is able to advise, decide, deliberate in all military strategies. He will be amazing at that. He will be full of wisdom. Wonderful, because this wisdom will be supernatural. Extraordinary, because of the divine source of this. Look at the next title, Mighty God. This word mighty refers here to a despot. God's representative in battle, which means any enemy fighting against this King Christ and his true representatives will be fighting against God himself. He's all powerful. Another of the attributes of this coming king that is a title of the one who will sit on David's throne. This individual will be mighty, powerful, divinely strong in battle. This title, however, is more than just might and military might. It refers to the child, Christ, in connection to chapter 7, verse 14, God with us. And in connection to the fact that this same wording is repeated also in chapter 10, verse 21. It is expressively identifying this child as God. It's saying... Something more than a mighty warrior. All these titles not only make this child unique, but also divine. He is inequivocally called Elohim, God, almighty God. That is a clear Old Testament hint that the Messiah needed to be also himself God made in the flesh. And then let's go to the next title, Everlasting Father, Eternal Father, or Father of Eternity. Now, obviously, the father... In the Trinity, is distinct from the Son. We're not going to make any uh, uh, Trinitarian comments here. We don't want to be heretical. The Son is not the Father. What this title, Everlasting Father, tells you is the relationship of this king to his subject. That as we, us, are relating to him, this king will have a fatherly care toward his people. He will act like a father, as a protector of his true people. When you have a child and someone, touches it, Obviously, there's a jealousy, there's a, there's a vindication, There is a, and this father, whenever a true child of God will be unjustly accused, the father will come down. The fact that he's still described that as everlasting again, a point however to the fact that this child is God. Not only he has no beginning, everlasting, or no end, but he has total control over eternity. He owns eternity, therefore he is God. Christ is the father of the world to come. And his rule, unlike any earthly king, will extend even there. And lastly, one more title, the most famous, the climactic title, we could say. It describes for us what kind of society will flow out of this king when he finally will rule over everything, the prince of peace, the official of peace, leader in highest ranking, a messenger of harmony. See, this is not just peace, friends, but it's all the blessings that flow from peace. Christ brings wholeness, not just the absence of conflict, but a safe environment, socioeconomic prosperity, all sort of things. No more war. Through him, wars will cease. People will turn their weapons into farming materials. Because of this invincible king who destroys all of his enemies, true believers can face prosperity, safety, vindication, justice under his leadership. And verse 7 concludes our text. Then unlike earthly kingdoms that rise and fall, his government will increase from a mustard seed to a huge tree and it will have no end. He shall sit upon the throne of David. David's kingdom. There will be no doubt this will be the Messiah, the king of Israel. He restores the kingdom of Israel back to order. He exercised what? Right judgment, justice, fairness. We could translate that not just for a lifetime, and once he's gone, the kingdom will end, but forever. Isaiah all over the place describes the as is just and peaceful kingdom in this way. And to certify the truth of this prophecy, Isaiah adds, that zeal of the Lord's of hosts will perform it. In other words, behind this prophecy and the fulfillment of his prophecy is the devotion of God, is the love, Toward his true people who are now in danger. And that prompts God to vindicate them by coming to their defense as a king. To conquer, to judge, to be fair. He is looking to make sure that this will happen. The Lord of hosts is his name. The captain of angel army. You can sh- be sure it will come to pass. Because God has dedicated himself to perform this word. God wants this to happen. In the early... Uh, Early centuries, there was an ancient Roman poet, Virgil, who lived just before the time of Christ, in 4 BC, 40 BC. He makes a reference in his book, chapter 4 of Eclogue, and he predicts the birth of a boy, of a savior, who once of age will show to be divine and rule the world. And the Romans read that book and interpreted it as a reference to the Roman emperor, Octavianus. Others actually have unwittingly thought that this is unwittingly referring to Jesus. Now, whether this is true or not, hundreds of years earlier than Virgil, Isaiah predicted this divine child. And I want you not to miss the paradox in these verses. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, and I quote, This child is infinite and in, an a and an infant eternal and yet born of a woman almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast supporting the universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arm king of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son that with the birth of Jesus friends we spread the good news that the divine King has come to bring us his perfect reign to bring justice it is indeed good news friends for God's true people that the incarnation happened. That is what we commemorate and remember tomorrow. That Jesus, the Christ, who was the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, take upon himself full humanity, appear voluntarily, humbly in human form, lives a truly human life without any loss of the divine nature and continues to be fully God's. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. God was made flesh. See, from the moment of conception, there in that womb, all the way to that birth, the cries of Mary and the cry of the baby. But the baby that she was holding in her hands was the God of the universe, made flesh. And friends, without this, we could never be saved. Without the manger, there is no cross. God had to become man so that God in the flesh could represent us before a just God, who is offended by our sin, And he was born for us, and also for us he died. Spurgeon says, each word from the the titles that we saw sounds like a salvo of artillery. It's a machine gun, able to quench all the doubts, able to revive all of our hopes. But you must believe that. You must internalize that. You must come, all ye faithful and unfaithful, to adore Christ, to come and behold the one who was born and died for you. Come as one of my favorite hymns written by Wesley, later edited by George Whitfield, it says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Born that we no more may die. Born to raise up from the earth. Born to give us second birth. Jesus was born that we may be born again. Jesus not only paid for our sins at the cross. He also gave back to us the righteousness, the freedom that we had lost. When, like Adam, we fail. And by so doing, he turns our conflict to shalom, to peace. He becomes the source of our peace. He makes us complete. He grants us lasting peace with God. He grants us favor toward those whom God is pleased to bestow his grace. But you see, without Christmas, Easter won't make sense. Christ's birth means the coming of God's King among us. The inauguration of the deliverance. From our slavery to sin. So, what child is this who lays to rest, friends, you may ask? I want you to ponder the qualities of this child. He's far more than a baby. He now is grown into a full man. He is now grown into a king. He's full of wisdom, full of responsibility. When you're in need of counsel or strength, he calls you to go to him as wonderful counselor. Realize also that Jesus is God himself, mighty at that. He's an actual warrior, mightiest in the entire universe, whose governments of the world will one day go to because he created this world. The hope of Christmas is indeed that also the hope of what, friends? Hope of justice. In the words of Zechariah's song, John the Baptist's dad, God through these birds saves us from what? From our enemies. From the hand of all those who hate us. Who with the sword out of his mouth, that is the Christ no longer a baby, he has a sword out his mouth. He will come again to bring judgment where now people without repercussions get away with things. He is coming, friends. He is coming. And he's jealous over his church. When Jesus comes back, he will make all wrongs right. He will expel from his church all workers of iniquity. Christ will bring justice where injustice now proliferates. Whether it's the places of power that we see on TV. Whether it's even in our daily life. He will bring order where chaos and lawless now reigns. But he's also coming to bring peace on earth. Where now wars rage. And when he comes again all over this earth. Our king will bring true lasting peace. Not the false peace of the Antichrist. These words unto us a child is born. By the way gave uh, rise to the most popular uh, composition by Handel, the Messiah. I, um, there's a tradition in our family. My wife uh, grew up Dutch reform, and me and my wife keeps this tradition. We used to go and watch the entire choir concert of uh, Handel, uh, whether at Campbell College in Michigan or the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. last uh, year. And there's the most uh, interesting fact is the circumstance that brought this uh, composition to to life. Uh, Handel was at the end of his life. Essentially, he was despised, rejected. People would go at his concert and start to play trumpets outside to get the crowds to stop. The king would not finance him. He was bankrupt in his room. Uh, The health was fading. And I want to say it was a divine moment when he started to pen all in one setting the entire uh, composition And the most famous compos- composition is indeed taken from this verse, Unto us a child is born. And when you listen to that piece, you almost can imagine the angels singing those same words from Isaiah. The majority of and the Messiah is from Isaiah. At the night when Jesus was born, the creation rejoices when the Creator comes to earth. How can this thing be? Mary asked. When the angel announced it where yet she obeyed the heavenly voice and she bore a son. She called him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And we are told here that zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see, the 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 miracle of Christmas is greater than anything in this world. God became flesh. This is the reason of the great rejoicing for us today and tomorrow. To think that God's care for you, God's love for you comes to such extent that he will send this son and that he has not done yet. He's coming back. He'll make all things right. All the things you have suffered will come before his tribunal and there will be no partiality. So what is Christmas all about? There was a mother gathering to celebrate the birth of her newborn son. She invited a bunch of friends over to celebrate his arrival, welcomed the guests. It's a great celebration. After a while, one of the ladies said, well, bring the baby out. Let us see it. The mother went to get the baby from his crib. but He was nowhere to be found. So she started to be panicking and fearful. Suddenly, she remembered that the baby was still at her parents' house. She had left him that morning. So she and the guests had been having so much fun, they had forgotten what the party was about in the first place. I want to say that that's the same thing for all of us, that during the Christmas season, many people get busy with celebration and forget that the birth of Jesus Christ is the reason for the season. They forget why does it matter. See, Christmas is not about Santa, not about Jingle Bells, not about Deck the Halls, not about Rudolph, not about the Grinch, not about eating good food, not about gifts. Not. Some people will be happy engaging all these things. I'm not saying that anything is inherently sinful in all that, okay? Others, however, will feel lonely. Others will be depressed. Sometimes holidays bring depression with them. But I want to say for both of these cases, the light of Christ's birth shines. Christ is the true meaning of Christmas. You see that the true bridge between heaven and earth starts at the incarnation when he brings light to your darkness. I want to say our world is very dark now. We have wars that only the Prince of Peace can end not through earthly schemes but think of it through divine weakness and that is what brings through peace on earth that that him peace on earth Goodwill to man uh, i heard the bells on christmas day was written during the civil war by a father who had lost his child his, his, his child going to, to through to fight for a war that lo- that causes the loss of so many lives for what He brings true peace on earth, not the false peace of this world. We need Christ, friends, now more than ever. I want to say this dimension of Christmas is what I wanted to bring to your attention this morning. The beginning of Christ's first coming is a call for you and me to look forward to the second coming. Our goal as a church should be, even through meager means and weakness, to look forward to the final triumph of Christ. He is coming back to judge the living and the dead. We'll have to give an account to him and he will bring triumph. But that triumph comes unnoticed. That triumph comes gradually. It doesn't come through earthly means, it doesn't come through power, but through God coming to us first. That's the true meaning of Christmas. Not simply that a child is born, friend, but that God came on earth and that this is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Why should we be merry this Christmas, friends? Most of all, because of the greatest astounding event in history, that 2,000 years ago, a holy night happened, that the transcendent, morally perfect, eternal God has come to our finite, sinful, and mortal creation, bridging the barrier that none of us could. All of our hope is found on that child born in Bethlehem, both son of David and son of God. And what we see here is suggested is that God passionately desires to do good to his children. Don't dream of a white Christmas. I'm not sp- speaking of snow. That doesn't snow in Tennessee, does it, during Christmas? No. The gift is the sun washing your sin away and making you as white as snow. That, that would be a gift for Christmas. However, this child king, I want to emphasize once again, must take over the control and the government of your life. You cannot have one without the other. You have to be willing to have him govern you from this Christmas for the rest of your life. If he's your savior, he's your king too. Are you obeying? Are you rebelling? Are you walking in darkness? Are you walking in the light? You cannot have joy. You cannot have honor. You cannot have light. You cannot have abundance. You cannot have peace from God tomorrow on Christmas morning without letting Christ in as the monarch of your soul. That you obey his rules. That you submit to his will. That you represent his just judgment. Because you see, after salvation, the same one one who saves his own, he sanctifies them. He doesn't leave them halfway. Christ's rulership must be total over your life. We serve him as after he saved us. And as members of Christ's church, I want to say this this Christmas, this this is the greatest responsibility. If there's one thing on earth that Christ is jealous and he is indeed coming to bring justice is his church we have the chance to share why Christ's birth is a good news until Jesus comes again and his coming might be closer than ever friends it might be closer than ever the rest of this prophecy awaits this future fulfillment one day maybe not too far ahead given our dark things are are now the rule of Christ will extend even to the whole world Well, now it doesn't appear that all things are subject to Christ, yet there's still a lot of rebellion. One day it will be evident to everyone, and it's toward that future hope that Christmas pushes us to move forward. Here is the glad tidings, friends, for this Christmas, that the King has come to bring joy in your sadness, to bring might in your bareness, to bring light in your darkness. Let us pray.